I don't like these songs on Christmas. Santa Claus, the Grinch, the Greek. Shiny superficial presents, but never Christ on Christmas Eve. I just want a hymn and prayer. When they get all secular, it's funny cause it's true. All the songs on Christmas are by Jews. Rocking around the Christmas tree, what a happy little tune. It's catchy and chic, but lacks the mystique. See, it's written by a Jew royalty. When you listen on each repeat, their riches glisten. Uh, but try not to say Christ was born on that day. If you ain't grooving with a Juden and your band, well, the weather they've manipulated and their melodies are overrated. Still, they're shilling these silly tunes. Weird, they're written by Hebrews. I'm dreaming of to fish. Jones in for kosher lockers too. Your streaming be dreary and trite, and may all your movies replace the white. Rudolph, the obvious allegory, his composer's nose was so enormous. But if you ever notice more of the 80 album, make you wish you weren't born. It's the most lucrative time of the year. It's okay, keep on spending your wages a plenty. Inflation, no fear. It's the most profitable time of the year. Silver sales, silver sales. Christ kicked us out of the temple. Still we scheme peddling. Soon we'll consume Christmas Day. Have a hollow shallow Christmas. Even this one's by a Jew. I guess Hanukkah is not good enough, so the common for Jesus too. Just hear those shekels jingling, goys relinquishing dough. Come on, it's a lovely economy as long as you got a good nose. Santa baby, better get some sex in there too. It's true. Guess who owns the porn industry? Not me. Just hang it on the coincidence tree. Mintoshin and Kugel casserole, dreidel cakes and mozzarella. The blood of a lamb above the doorway outside. Hope that Yahweh passes over tonight. We know that Santa's fake and gay. What once was sacred now's a soulless holiday. And every Weinstein that likes to quetch, make sure the music of the chosen people spreads. Have yourself an all-inclusive Xmas. Happy Kwanzaa to watch. You'll get in trouble when you mention you know who. All this Christmas music written by the Welcome to another episode of EMJ Live on the eve of Christmas Eve in uh, foggy downtown South Bend, Indiana. Uh, we uh, just listened to that uh, amazing song parody of all the Jews who uh, Jewish songs who were written around Christmas. Uh, it's that time of year. Um, I remember uh, as a child what Christmas was like. And Christmas, the center of Christmas, as I understood it that time, um, saying maybe I was I was five years old in 1953, let's say, old enough to understand 
that Christmas was going on during that period of time. Center of Christmas celebration, in my mind, was a department store. We don't have department stores anymore. Uh, for the most part, uh, Sears at the local mall has gone belly up, uh, a huge chain, uh, no longer in existence. But back then, you would go to the department store. There were three of them in Philadelphia. Uh, and there would be an entire floor dedicated to toys. And I, as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old, would wander around, look at all the toys, look at Santa Claus, look at the model railroad, which was always the high point of this thing. I'd build my own model railroad in the basement uh, every Christmas. This was uh, a Jewish Christmas. Just like the songs we just heard, it was Jewish Christmas. But there was an unusual development here. It was so spectacular that even the Jews were impressed. And I say that because Naomi Wolf just wrote an article. She's uh, about 15 years younger than me. So she's talking about the 60s now. Uh, and um, she talked about how wonderful Christmas was until the left destroyed it. <laughs> well, wait a minute, Naomi. <laughs> it wasn't the left. It was the Jews who destroyed Christmas. But wait a minute. They, didn't they create Christmas? So this is the paradox here. We had the Jewish celebration of Christmas creating all sorts of nostalgia in Jews which they couldn't act on because they couldn't quite bring themselves to accept uh, the fact that the Messiah was born. The Messiah, when he grew up, they killed him. And they've got all these conflicting feelings that all come out in Naomi Wolf's uh, article. So God bless her. What did the Jews do? They created Hanukkah. Now, uh, if you read uh, about Hanukkah, or they will invariably tell you that it goes back to the Maccabees, uh, and that's not true. It, it, there is no continuity here. Uh, it basically was created in the 1950s. Even Wikipedia mentions that because the Jews who created these department stores created a longing for Christ or Christmas or whatever you want to call it that the Jews couldn't fulfill. And so they created Hanukkah as a way of uh, compensating them. It's Hanukkah is like the Talmud. It's a way of distracting Jews uh, from the Christ that they rejected. Uh, Hanukkah, I've said before, is the Jewish Kwanzaa. And for those of you who don't know, Kwanzaa was a celebration uh, that was uh, claims to be this ancient uh, African celebration. Well, it turns out it was created in uh, Los Angeles in 1969 by uh, 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 an agent, probably a double agent working for the FBI known as Ron Karenga. And the purpose of this was to keep blacks from celebrating Christmas, exactly analogous to the purpose of Hanukkah, which is to keep Jews from celebrating Christmas. Even in the middle of the world that the Jews created, which is a longing to celebrate Christmas. So it's, it's probably the uh, cunning of reason here. Anyway, so now we don't have department stores. Now it's probably a good thing because that was always a distraction from Christmas. Uh, God has a way of bringing us back. And so we have a more serious, if sober and somber celebration of Christmas that functions now on church and the home, which is as it should be. But that doesn't mean that uh, we don't have uh, aberrations now and then. And one of them that just happened was Bishop Barron uh, writing... Uh, an article uh, entitled Catholics Cannot Be Anti-Semites. Now, when I saw that headline, I rejoiced. I felt finally a bishop who understands my, my plight, a bishop who understands my predicament. And so I immediately tweeted to Bishop Barron, please tell the ADL that Catholics cannot be anti-Semites. I've been saying this for years and they don't listen to me. Uh, uh, they, I don't know why they don't listen. Maybe they'll listen to a bishop. Well, it turns out that I was a little bit premature in my celebration because when I went on to read it, it turns out that uh, 
Bishop Barron, uh, it looks as if he believes that there are Catholic anti-Semites. He's not warning them that no such thing exists. Uh, Catholics cannot be anti-Semites. What do I mean when I say that? It's very clear. It was stated in all sorts of traditional understanding. Anti-Semitism is racial, uh, a race-based ideology, which is based on biological determinism. And it says basically Jews have bad DNA, and so they can't think straight. And so, uh, therefore, uh, they should, we should take measures against them. The idea was created by Wilhelm Marr, 1871. Der Sieg der Judentums über das Germanentums. Came, a book came out in 1871. He was a revolutionary. Uh, he, uh, uh, during the failed revolution of 1848, and he blamed the failure of that revolution in Hamburg on Jews who basically stabbed the other revolutionaries in the back. So according to that uh, Catholic understanding was it makes no sense to talk about the events of the gospel from a racial perspective. It's like talking about uh, trying to decide uh, the, the, uh, the Reformation according to a racial perspective. There is no racial difference between Protestants and Catholics in Germany. They are all of the same race. Same thing at the time of Jesus Christ. There was a huge conflict and they were all, they all had the same DNA. Uh, so they were all Jews, if you want to use that term. St. John uses that term. Uh, they were the Jews who accepted Christ, and they were the Jews who rejected Christ. It's that simple. Well, apparently Bishop Barron didn't get the memo because he's now talking about Catholic anti-Semitism. Christianity collapses on itself without constant reference to its Jewish antecedents. Were the people of the Old Testament Jews? The term arrives relatively late in Scripture, and when it appears in the Gospel of St. John, it is pejorative. If we are talking about Hebrews, on the other hand, there is no continuity between the people who followed Moses out of Egypt and the Jews who are now engaged in genocide in Gaza. No religious continuity, no biological continuity, no continuity. Jesus Christ made that clear when he told the Jews of his day that they were not the children of Moses, because they refused to accept him as their Messiah. He went on to say that their father was Satan. Your father is Satan, Jesus said to the Jews. Does that mean that Jesus Christ was an anti-Semite? Bishop Barron denounced anyone who used the term synagogue of Satan as anti-Semitic, even though this term is taken from the book of Revelations. Instead of mentioning any of these relevant passages, Baron citing St. Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is the yes to all of the promises made to Israel, which is certainly true, but only if the Jews accept baptism, which is something Bishop Barron failed to bring up in his dialogue with Ben Shapiro. Barron then tells us, Pius XI declared, we are all spiritually Semites. And then as a finishing the syllogism, Barron concludes, hence, if you don't get the Jews, you won't get Jesus. It's as simple and as important as that. As that. Okay, in the speech to the disciples who did not recognize him on the way to Emmaus, Barron tells us that Jews, that Jesus, sorry, presents himself as the fulfillment of salvation history, the culminating point of the story of the Jews the full expression of Torah, temple, and prophecy. And it was in the course of that speech that the hearts of the disciples commenced to burn within them. Well, I agree with that. But then he has to impose this tendentious interpretation of this exercise in proof testing on the unsuspecting reader by claiming that it was a deeply Jewish speech that led to conversion. What does Barron mean by deeply Jewish? Why is this speech deeply Jewish? Why is it any more Jewish or less Jewish than any other speech in the scriptures? Has he read the gospel of St. John? He uses the term Jew 71 times and in every instance, but one as a pejorative term. But then I think we're starting to get around to uh, what's really going on here. Uh, he then cites as the example that he's following, William F. Buckley. Wait a minute, was he a theologian? No, he was the editor of uh, National Review. 
Buckley was also the commissar who policed the perimeter of the concentration camp known as conservatism. When William F. Buckley was endeavoring to launch, this is now Barron taking it up here. When William F. Buckley was endeavoring to launch his journal, National Review, in the 1950s, he was eager to recruit the best and brightest among the conservative thinkers in the Anglosphere. But he was scrupulously scrupulous in eliminating from consideration any who exhibited anti-Semitic attitudes, for he knew that they would undermine his project both morally and intellectually. Well, that's not really true. Okay, uh, not of the early Buckley, which you can see on uh, YouTube uh, on old reruns of Firing Time, where he brought up Jewish participation in the Bolshevik Revolution with a prominent Jew uh, by the name of David Suskind. That was in the 50s or probably the 60s, uh, early on. By 1990, he had learned his lesson from Jewish conservative handlers like Norman Bedard's and Buckley obligingly stabbed Pat Buchanan and Joe Sobrin in the back in a monumental piece of incoherent bombast entitled In Search of Anti-Semitism. With Buckley as his mentor, this is significant. Buckley is Barron's mentor here. So that means he's a commissar for the Catholic Church whose job is to expel anti-Semites from the church because they are, by definition, enemies of Christ. Wait a minute. Anti-Semites are enemies of Christ? What he calls anti-Semites? The phrase enemy of Christ brought another scriptural passage to mind, which Barron's exercise in proof texting conveniently omitted. In 1 Thessalonians 2, St. Paul refers to the Jews as, quote, the people who put the Lord Jesus to death and the prophets too. And now they have been persecuting us and acting in a way that cannot please God and makes them enemies of the whole human race. Close quote. That's St. Paul. Is Bishop Barron saying that St. Paul is an enemy of Christ because he said that the Jews were enemies of the whole human race? Is he saying that St. John is an anti-Semite because in his gospel he tells Jews, your father is Satan? What's going on here? I think it's clear what's going on here. I don't think I have to explain this. I've said it a million times before. Bishop Barron is not preaching the gospel here. He's a commissar who's modeling his behavior on William F. Buckley, and his job is to expel people he considers Uh, anti-Semites from uh, polite company because he can't expel them from the Catholic Church because if he tried, they could quote more scripture than he does. So what's going on here? Now, uh, there is a huge uh, furor going on on the internet about uh, a document just issued by the Vatican called Fiducia Supplicans. Uh, And Uh, what we're seeing here is basically two groups, uh, uh, two groups of people who are in total agreement on fiducia supplicans. Okay. One, James Martin, and I'm sure many Jesuits. And two, LifeSite News. Now these are opposite ends. Why are they? Why are they? Uh, what do they have in common? They are both claiming that fiducia supplicans is at either a first step toward gay marriage or actually gay marriage, and therefore an abomination. Okay, that's what they have in common. It turns out that they are both wrong. And guess who got it right? Bishop Barrett. Okay. Now I know that, I know this is too complicated for most of the people out there. I, I really I really wish I could make things uh, simpler, but I can't. Okay. I can make things as simple as possible, but I can't make them any simpler without ending up being like everybody else on the internet, both the uh, James Martin faction and the LifeSite News faction, because they are both in agreement. 
And people simply cannot understand this. How is this possible? How is this possible? Well, if you read the document, I mean, you can have your qualms about everything. You know, is it opportune? Is it a good idea? Uh, is it a good idea to promote this in Africa? Probably not. Is it a universal problem? No, it's not. Uh, I have talked repeatedly about James Martin's influence over the Vatican, and I think this is an example of it. And he clearly took it and he ran with it uh, in clear defiance of the document, which says basically it is not a it is not the same as gay marriage. In his uh, claim, uh, Barron said it is equally clear. Uh, in his attempt to clear up the word uh, attempt. Okay. Barron attempts to clear up the ambiguity surrounding the word blessing in fiducia supplicans in which he claims that quote blessing as approval is excluded from consideration. That's in the document. In that document, uh, homosexuals requesting this blessing do not claim a legitimization of their own status. By recognizing themselves to be destitute, what they're doing is they have to recognize themselves as destitute in need and in need of help. Barry goes on to cite another passage from the same document which proclaims there is no intention to legitimatize anything because the church does not have the power to impart blessings on unions of persons of the same sex. If you think this is confusing, I agree with you. If you think I can make it simpler so that you can take a position that will scratch your itching ears, I disagree with you. My goal in life is to make things as simple po as possible, but no simpler. Okay, I'd like to give you a, a, a better example of what happened here uh, from my friend, uh, Reverend Brian Harrison whose initial reaction to this whole thing was totally negative. Okay, this is what he said. He just tweeted this. After an initial shell-shocked reaction to fiducia supplicans that was totally negative, and which some of you read in my email of several days ago, headed, he's done the unthinkable, I subsequently gave some calmer and more careful attention to the document and now think that it does teach with adequate, though not crystal clarity, what the prefect says it teaches. I don't think it's heretical, nor Pache Cardinal Muller do I find it self-contradictory. I think the over-meticulous logical niceties his eminence depends on to arrive at that conclusion. He's talking about Muller now tend to lose sight of the wood for the trees, the wood being that a text should be taken as meaning what its author clearly intends it to mean, even if he may have overlooked a bit of imprecision in his wording. But how pastorally prudent this issue, the issuance of this declaration is, is under pre present historical cultural circumstances, is another question altogether, which I also agree with, okay? Both James Martin and LifeSite News are determined to misread this document. They are determined to turn fiducia supplicans into a first step in the direction of gay marriage, if not gay marriage itself, in a clear contradiction of the equally clear statements to the contrary in the text of the document. At this point, the itching ears crowd explodes into rage and vituperation on the comm box. The itching ears crowd wants to side with either James Martin or Michael Voris without the slightest indication that in framing the issue in those terms, every Catholic is confronted with Hobson's choice. That's my rant. Let's hear what you have to say. All right. Welcome all. Um, one second. One second. Let me get this going here. Hey. All right. This is Mike Bajakis, uh, Dr. Jones' assistant. Uh, quick rules for those who are new. Uh, this is the call-in section of our show. Call-ins are made via Telegram. Link is in description. In Telegram, I'll call on those who raise their hands, and then later in the stream, we'll read off text questions from the chat. Uh, try to keep questions on subject. Try to keep to one question. Be respectful of time, and do not forget to unmute yourself. 
All right, I'm jumping to Telegram here. Let us go to MV. Go ahead, MV. Hey, Dr. Jones. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Um, I, I don't understand the motivation of someone like Bishop Barron, I mean, or, or anybody really in those positions. I mean, is it just to make sure everybody gets along and keeps putting money in the till? Uh, what, what's, I mean, can you ex explain, are there any, is there anybody with any courage in the American Catholic Church? What's going on? I think he wants to be in good, the good graces of the Jews, who are the most powerful actors in this country uh, and in the world right now. Uh, and uh, then the question is, well, why do you want to be in good graces with the Jews? And that's something uh, you're going to have to ask him. But this, this is clearly an attempt at pandering, pandering to that powerful group, as are his uh, interviews with uh, Ben Shapiro. Okay, I hope the seminaries are producing people with more courage. Actually, they are. I've, met, I've talked to a number of these people in the seminaries. So this is, uh, 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 he's like the broken clock. He gets it right every now and then. Twice a day would be an exaggeration, but gets it right every now and then. So, uh, you're, you know, why, why this complete capitulation on something so obvious? Uh, uh, and an an abominable exercise in proof texting that is both condescending and patronizing and flat out wrong. I don't know. That's a question he's going to have to answer. Why did you do this? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, MV. Uh, next, let's go to Elros. Go ahead. And don't forget to unmute. Can you hear me, Dr. Jones? I can. Uh, privileged to speak to you. Um, uh, I forget which live episode it was. It was recent that you spoke about Mother Angelica. Yeah. And I, I, don't, want, I don't want to gainsay any of um, the claims you were making. Uh, and, I, and they're actually a bit vague to me right now. Uh, I remember you saying that she, she made some scandalous statements uh, by criticizing a bishop or calling his authority into question. Yes. But, um, and Cardinal Mahoney of Los Angeles. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, and I, I think you were, you were relating it somehow to Michael Voris. Right. Um, so could, could you, um, for, for my sake, clarify, uh, what you were talking about again? Cause there were, you, you were making certain statements that I, I just didn't have a lot of context for it. I, right. I, I, it's in the yeah. book I did on Michael Voris, and I said that there were similarities in their backgrounds. Uh, and I think that there, there was uh, this kind of uh, father deprivation in both, in both instances, so in, in different ways, uh, that could have led to same, it could have created same-sex attraction. Uh, in this thing, uh, I said that uh, I made a clear statement that uh, this was not the case with Mother Angelica. She had uh, was able to pull herself out of that problematic situation, largely because of the experiences of her childhood, and that she was not a lesbian. I said that repeatedly, okay? Uh, whereas Michael Voris uh, did succumb to that. Uh, why one person succumbs and another doesn't, that's another complicated matter. Anyway, I got on Taylor Marshall. I, th I had a really interesting and revealing conversation with Taylor Marshall and uh, I think it's Timothy Gordon on this thing. And it became clear to me that it's very similar to what I just said about the text of Fiducius Supplicans. These two guys were not interested in the truth. They were not interested in the text of what I actually wrote. They were interested in convicting me of a crime that I did not commit, which is basically saying that Mother Angelica was a lesbian. I did not say that. So it was re revealing. And I think it, it's helped me to understand Taylor Marshall. I don't, think he, I don't think he's interested in the truth. I think he's interested in creating, uh, 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 becoming a replacement pope. I think that's exactly what this whole Boris story was all about when it blew up. And I'm not, don't take my word for it. Uh, take uh, John Henry Weston of LifeSite News. When this whole thing blew up, when the Voris scandal uh, uh, appeared for the second time, okay, I was, 
I was the go-to guy, okay? I explained it seven years ago, and these guys did not want me to explain it again. The whole point of this, completely exclude me from the story. They already attempted their, uh, to, their attempt at a character assassination by trying to put words in my mouth. I'm talking specifically about Taylor Marshall and Timothy Gordon. They were both guilty of this. And now no one's mentioning the fact that I called this seven years ago. But when John and Henry Weston comes on, he says, oh, this is sorry. Oh, this is tragic. Michael Voris gave a beautiful presentation of the Catholic faith. This is ridiculous. This was S&M Catholicism from the beginning. This was leather bar Catholicism from the beginning, and I pointed it out seven years ago. But then he gets to the point, people should not associate Michael Voris with LifeSite News, Taylor Marshall, uh, Michael Matt. If I leave someone out, I apologize, but those are the three that stick in my mind. Well, that's the issue, isn't it? This was a group of people who were creating a parachurch, and one of the main leaders of it blew up in public because of his uh, inability to control his own homosexual desires. And now everyone's kind of moving. Uh, wait a minute. Don't, don't look at that. Uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And now they're trying to maintain uh, a, the parachurch as if Michael Voris never happened. That's what's going on here. Yeah, um, Taylor Marshall is a disgrace. And, um, you know, I, I like Timothy Gordon. I, you know, he had his falling out with Taylor Marshall. And um, he used to be a Vatican II basher with Taylor Marshall. Taylor Marshall never overcame his Protestant instinct, I think. And um, Tim Gordon started steering away from that. Uh, last question. Do you, do you think that Taylor Marshall would be willing to debate you or do you think no, no, I don't think I don't think. First of all, I don't think Taylor Marshall is interested in knowing the truth. If it's going to hurt, if it's going to hurt his numbers or his followers, he's not. He showed me on his show. I've already talked to him. He already showed that he is not interested in the truth. He wants to be the demagogue, the commissar to use the term again, the commissar that polices the edges of the new concentration camp known as the parachurch. Absolutely. I totally agree with you, Dr. Jones. Um, yeah, I, I really hope Pim Gordon um, can can, start, can get out of that mindset as well, because I really like him, whereas I, I don't like Taylor Marshall at all. But thanks for your uh, clarification on the issue, Dr. Jones. Uh, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas. All right. Thank you, Elros. Let's go to um, uh, Quentin Heisler. Hessler. Uh, go ahead, Quentin. Hi, Dr. Jones. Merry Hello. Christmas. How Merry are you? Merry Christmas to you. I'm doing fine. Last month I was in Croatia. So if this is repetitive, I don't want to have to make you repeat the same thing if you've done this in other interviews. But um, being in Croatia and Slovenia last month, um, what you mentioned a group of rebellious for, uh, Croatian Franciscans in relation. It was an interview you did at, uh, I'm sorry if I can't pronounce it, Medjugorje? How, yeah. how is it pronounced? Right, Medjugorje. Medjugorje. So could you just kind of um, elaborate? That's very fat. There's there's so much beauty in that, um, you know, in the Balkans and the former Yugoslavia, but it, they're empty vessels almost more than any anywhere I've been in continental Europe. It's staggering. So what, yeah, what's kind of your impression of uh, that region and its oh. relation to, you know, Catholicism? It's, it's beautiful. I, one of the most beautiful places was Mostar which is where the bishop is located. And Mostar means old bridge. And there's this old stone bridge over the Naredva River. And the Naredva River, because it's all the calcium deposits all around, it's this beautiful uh, turquoise color. Uh, and it was the last time I saw it, it was beautiful, but uh, the, the bridge wasn't there. It got blown up during the, the, the Civil War. So I'll give you the, in a nutshell, okay, Medjugorje was created by two Franciscans from the province of Bosnia-Herzegovina, Jozo Zovko and Tomislav Lasic. It wasn't created by the kids. They took control of the kids, and it grew after that. If you want the story, I have written a book called The Medjugorje Deception, which is now uh, for sale. If you go to uh, fidelitypress.org, you will get the entire story of how that happened how the CIA got involved. I had uh, did Freedom of Information Act 
uh, 20 pages of documents, uh, 19 and a half of which were blacked out. And then they had the gall to send me a bill for $150. So let me tell you right now, I stiffed the CIA. I did not pay for that document. And I lived to tell the tale. There was no missile strike on my house after I did that. I hope this doesn't wake them up uh, again. But anyway, uh, this is the story is in this uh, the book. I encourage you to read the book. And I encourage you to read as opposed to just getting summaries because you will have a depth of knowledge that you will not have simply by me giving, you know, 10 second summaries. It's all in that book. Uh, this is uh, over almost 20 years of research. My first time was there. I was in 1988 when I met with Bishop Zonich, who was then bishop, and he explained to me, uh, this naive American, what was really going on over there. Uh, in 1996, I went back and I met with his successor, Bishop Rotko Perich, who said exactly the same thing. This is not for real. But the people with itching ears wanted, uh, wanted it to be real. Uh, the silly women, I, I saw many s silly women obsessed with their sins. As I was flying out, I had one woman on one side and one woman on the other, and they were both telling me about the sins of their youth, whether, and I couldn't get out, I didn't have a parachute. But this is what this is about, and you can find the whole story in the Medjugorje Deception. Thank you. Merry Christmas. God bless. Thank you. Okay, next we're going to go to uh, Frank Carmel. Uh, go ahead, Frank. Hi, Dr. Jones. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to go back to what you were talking about at the beginning about Hanukkah and Christmas and all those things and just relate to you a little bit of my experience. I grew up in Baltimore. You grew up in Philadelphia. I'm a little bit younger than you, like five or ten years younger than you. So I grew up in the 60s. And, uh, you know, later on... <clears throat> I had a, a Jewish girlfriend. I was thinking about converting when I was around 30 years old. And she told me, you know, it's the same thing you said, that Hanukkah was just sort of a made-up holiday, that they, you know, the Jewish kids, they got, you know, uh, jealous of the of the other kids getting all these presents. And so, they, you know, that's what they did to compensate. Yeah. And, um, you know, not, not only that, what, one, in, in, Brother Nathaniel said exactly the same thing about growing up as a Jew in, uh, in Pittsburgh. He was... When yeah. Christmas time came around, he just loved to be invited to the, the Italian Catholics who lived down the street to their house because everything was so joyous compared to the dreariness of his own Jewish household. But go ahead, continue. Yeah, and then, um, you know, you know, talking about the, uh, the, the Jewish department stores, we had the same situation in Baltimore. We had Hutzlers and Hex. They were, you know, Jewish department stores. And they always had the Santa Claus display. You know, all the kids went to get their picture taken with Santa Claus. And, uh, you know, one thing she was telling me was that, uh, you know, this whole thing with X and the ADL boycotts and all that. Well, back then, if the newspaper, like the Baltimore Sun in our case, printed something that Jews didn't like, they had, you know, phone trees set up. She told me she participated in these phone trees. And, and then, you know, they would start uh, letter writing campaigns and so on. And also the, the Jewish businesses would boycott the newspapers and say, okay, we're not putting any ads, which, which was a big part of their revenue, right? Yeah. No, this is, this Unless, is uh, first of all, uh, Ginsburg says this in Tragic, uh, uh, tragic Embrace. Uh, and a book he wrote about the Jews, he said that this is how they dealt with, they created this in uh, the 50s. It was called Dynamic Silence. If anybody said anything positive, any newspaper said anything positive about America first or somebody Jews didn't like, there would the phone tree would light up and the Jews would threaten to boycott, pull out their advertising, and that's how they controlled the uh, press. Nothing has changed. Well, everything has changed, but there's a certain continuity here because they just did this with Elon Musk. Exactly the same thing with Elon Musk. The Jews got, I don't know why, but they just went after Elon Musk and they've got all the Jewish advertisers, big advertisers like Disney and so on and so forth, big Jewish advertisers, and got them to threaten a, a boycott. Yeah. And well, yeah, that's that's about it, except, uh, you know, what you were saying about uh, the attack on Christmas. You know, when I was growing up in the 60s, we had, you know, Christmas holiday and we had a Christmas uh, show 
and we sang Silent Night. We sang all those, you know, beautiful songs that talk about Jesus. And, you know, nobody had any issues with it. And now you, you're, you're, those songs are bad for many schools. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, well thanks again. Merry Christmas. Same Thank to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Frank. Okay, let's go to the next. Um, no one is raising their hand. Anyone like to ask a question? Anyone at all? Rare time where no one's raising their hand. No one? No one? No one? All right, so I guess we can jump to Cozy and just read some questions from the chat okay. if no one wants to ask Dr. Jones a question. Cool. All right, Cozy, give us some questions and we will do that. All right, here we go. <clears throat> okay, jump to Cozy here. Pardon me. Uh, from a user on Cozy, Dr. Jones, are you familiar with the work of the French philosopher woman from the early 20th century, Simon or Simone uh, Weil? Yes, I am to some extent. I can't say it had a big influence on my life, but yeah, I'm familiar with it. Simone Vile. Vile, Vile, okay. What did she uh, claim? What was her philosophy, I guess? Good question. Good question, no? Okay. Um, all right, uh, from St. Paul Enjoyer. Uh, uh, let's see. Is there any doubt that EMJ would Pope explain anything? Pope Francis would sue or day? He's locked in there. So are you Pope explaining, Dr. Jones? Or? What, is that? What, what do you mean? What, what is this? Did, did did what I say today don't 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 put these categories of the mind on what I'm trying to say as soon as you use categories like Pope's planning I'm guilty I mean you're not gonna you can't have discourse reasonable discourse if you start off with these insulting type of neologisms that basically play down the truth of what I'm saying so if what I said is false uh, point out the error. If what I said is true, why do you strike me? Don't use words like Pope's planning, okay? It's an insult to me and to everyone who is listening here today. From Zenu uh, the Zealous, uh, salutations and a blessed Christmas from Croatia, doctor. Um, how would you comment on Central Europe's political situation? The central, uh, well, central, the, the situation is basically uh, the, the United States uh, expanded NATO eastward when they promised uh, 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 Gorbachev, when George H.W. Bush promised Gorbachev that they didn't. This was an, an attempt to get um, all of these Eastern European countries under, under control. Okay, uh, I know this. Um, uh, my friend uh, Michal Samin invited me to, uh, I think it was still Czechoslovakia at that time, but it became the Czech Republic uh, shortly thereafter. And he told me that uh, he worked to, for the overthrow of communism. And then, okay, that's great. Communism fell. And then suddenly the National Review shows up. Remember Buckley Magazine, Conservatism? And uh, so they say, well, what do you, what would you like? We, we're here to help. Uh, and uh, Mikhail said, well, you know, the libraries need help because we got all this Soviet propaganda that's completely worthless. We need to buy better books. And the representative of National Review said, oh, that's great, but that's not what you need. What you need is to join NATO. And we're going to help you put on a symposium here in uh, Prague where you will drum up support for supporting NATO. And we're going to have Margaret Thatcher come and talk to you. So in other words, it was a completely phony operation. The whole point of this is to take advantage of these people. He told me that uh, if, if a jet takes – the Czech Republic is so small that if a jet takes off, it has to ask for permission from other surrounding countries' airspace. And this is now going to be in the interest of the Czech Republic? No, it's not. And so what happened is they expanded eastward and then they hit the red line, which is the Ukraine. Uh, they tried to, uh, uh, were using the Ukraine as the cat's paw to basically mount an attack on Russia and Putin stopped it. So now we have a crisis, okay? 
uh, it's the Eastern Europeans uh, now. Now, you can, I can't generalize about Eastern Europeans. So let me tell you the situation. Uh, uh, Mr. Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, uh, basically said, I'm not going to approve any more EU money for the Ukraine. We've already wasted enough. And so this held up the funding. And so they decided, well, you know, we're not going to let this, uh, like one, like from an insignificant, who do you think you are? This uppity hunky from, uh, from Budapest. Uh, so what they did was basically, would you, uh, please leave the room. And when he left the room, they passed it unanimously, which, which is what they had to. So now you have a situation where it's breaking apart. This is going to be the rock. The Ukraine is going to be the rock on which the European Union, uh, or more specifically, NATO, is going to founder. We, it's already happening. Turkey pulled out of NATO. Turkey never should have been in NATO to begin with, but it pulled out because of what is happening in Gaza, which is means, you know, part of the American empire means supporting the yeah, Israeli genocide against um, Palestinians. It's happening. It's got to happen. It's inevitable. Even Germany, the most brainwashed country in Europe, uh, just the CDU, the Christian Democrat Union, just said they are going to open up the nuclear plants. They have to do this. It's a necessity. They need the energy. Germany cannot survive as a manufacturing powerhouse without cheap energy. And the only thing left is the nuclear plants, since they don't have the guts to basically confront NATO at this moment and uh, open the pipeline. The pipeline is still, they only blew up one part of Nord Stream. Putin has said, you guys want the, the gas? We can open it up tomorrow. That's got to happen. The whole thing has to go to its bitter end. Uh, the, the Europeans are going to have to have now, after they got liberation in Eastern Europe anyway, from the Soviet Union, now all of Europe is going to have to work for some type of liberation from the American empire. Uh, and the Americans are doing their best to uh, speed it up as much as possible. That's sort of my summary. If you have a more specific question, let me know. From Atomic Fitness on Cozy, uh, question, what is your take on Christian identity slash Europeans being biblical Israelites? Uh, this is a crazy English notion, They're the British Israelites, that somehow the uh, Englishmen are the 10 lost tribes uh, of Israel. It goes back to the Puritan era in England uh, when the lunatics took over the asylum. And I'm talking about all of these crazy sects like the Quakers and the Shakers and the Puritans and the Fifth Monarchy Men and uh, crazy, uh, even crazier people like, praise God, Bare Bones, whose name was really Barbon. He's a French uh, Huguenot uh, who wanted to make Hebrew the official language of England because Hebrew is the language which God speaks. You didn't know that, did you? Anyway, uh, this craziness, part of this craziness was the idea that uh, we could usher in um, the millennium if, we, if, in, if the, uh, uh, the gospel had been spread to the far corners of the earth, uh, which meant admitting the Jews to England. Uh, Increase Mather, the father of the famous Cotton Mather, wrote a book, another crazy book called uh, Jews in America about 300 years before it had any relevance. And in that book, he was claiming that the Indians were really the 10 lost tribes. So this is where all of this craziness comes from. Give an Englishman the Bible uh, and let him interpret the Bible in whatever way he sees fit, which is the essence of what Protestantism is and the Protestant takeover of England, and you will come up with absolute craziness. Uh, at best, and, and genocidal warfare at worst. Of, that's not me, Cromwell, the classic Puritan lunatic, um, whose secretary was John Milton, who wrote uh, the one of the great poems uh, and made Satan the hero of Paradise Lost, uh, did exactly this to the Irish. It, the thing that enabled him to engage in the genocide of the Irish was the idea of Amalek, 
uh, which is an Old Testament idea. These are people who are the enemies of the Hebrew people. Obviously, Cromwell thought he was one of those Hebrews. Uh, and it, once your enemy is Amalek, you can destroy, you can murder women and children. You can do anything you want with no regard to the moral law. And if you don't believe me, check out what Benjamin Netanyahu is yet is doing now in Gaza. He invoked Amalek. And Gaza is the result when you invoke Amalek. So stay away from these Judaizers, please. All right, next question uh, from Rumble. Um, where was it? Uh, oh, from Android 4. Dr. Jones, you mentioned in your book on Boris that he was molested by his father. How did you discover this? Because I was told this by one of my sources. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, all right, from Glenn Gary Glenn Groiper. How do Protestants accept that their Bible was edited by Martin Luther on his own authority? Um, well, they just say it. I mean, then they have to have some type of elaborate uh, just explanation how the church, uh, which consecrated Luther as a priest, got it wrong for 1,500 years. How is that possible? That's the, there was a tremendous break in continuity, uh, and so there was no apostolic succession to people like Luther, which means he did not have any of the powers that a priest is supposed to have. So this is obviously a crisis. And I'm saying Luther was not the exact, the best example of this, but invariably, when you come to this crisis of authority, the Protestant will turn to the Old Testament as justification of his position, and that he is uh, like, well, I am one of the 10 lost tribes, or this type of lunacy that came out of England during the, the time of the um, uh, Civil War in the 17th century. From Kingfish AF on Cozy, should parents lie to their kids about Santa Claus? The question is, is telling children about Santa Claus a lie? I don't think it's a lie. I think that Santa, you can say that Santa Claus uh, was our understanding of St. Nicholas. Uh, when I lived in Germany, uh, St. Nicholas would arrive in the little town uh, by boat. Uh, he'd ride on a white horse uh, with his companion, uh, who was called uh, Schwarte Pete, Black Pete in Dutch, and he was called Knecht Ruchbrecht in, in German. These are historical figures, and this is a historical reenactment of uh, uh, Christian, Christian history. Now, when you start get, uh, uh, going away from that, this is still this was still under the control in some extent to some extent of the church in this small town in Germany. Okay, it was a holiday they celebrated Saint Nicholas. My my daughter was in Bari; she spent uh, time in Bari in Italy. It was the biggest event of the year. Now, are you telling me that this is a lie that we're talking about uh, Santa Claus? Now, when you get to America, you start uh, and it, it gets embellished. And so, you know, you know, it was the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. And now you got this guy coming down the chimney. Do you tell your children that Santa Claus comes down the chimney, this fat guy coming down your narrow chimney? Well, if you do, you're going to create uh, uh, problems in your children's minds. We're going to say eventually that uh, that's not possible. So I'm saying uh, it's not necessarily a lie. Uh, but if you get in, involved in all of these later accretions, uh, you may end up having trouble uh, justifying it. Okay. Um, from Catholic Mom, uh, question, heard your podcast with Gemma Odorti, and I'm uh, and not using white in Ireland. What is your perspective on that in the U.S.? Well, first of all, white is a, an important category in the United States of America because uh, the Virginia colony had both Irish slaves 
and African slaves, and they needed to distinguish them just as a way of uh, dividing uh, dividing people. Okay, that's like saying, okay, it's like saying, that's a category of reality. I'm not denying that. It's like saying, uh, you know, my nose looks different than the nose of an African. Of course it does. My hair looks different. My skin looks different. Okay, that's a category of reality. But when you start imposing categories of the mind on it, like that white people are superior to black people or our current situation, which is basically black people are superior to white people, then you're, you're, you're moving into a system of control. And that's exactly what it was from the inception. When you privileged the white, the Irish slaves over the African slaves, it was a, a way of dividing the workforce so that they wouldn't uh, rise up against you. And that's what it is today with the exact opposite. Okay, which is basically that white people are bad, black people are good. This has no relevance whatsoever to Ireland. It does not explain anything that happened in Ireland historically. As I said before, the one of the, the big crisis in Ireland for centuries was basically the Protestant uh, conquest of Ireland with people like Cromwell, uh, genocidal ethnic cleansing. Uh, uh, that's a big issue. Well, it, Cromwell was every bit as white as the Irish that he ethnically cleansed. It, has, it is a meaningless term. And I'm saying if the Irish adopt it, uh, they're in for trouble. So what happens recently? Uh, Leo Varadkar, who is the homosexual Tisic or prime minister of uh, Ireland, announced that there are too many white people in Ireland. That's a really stupid thing to say. He's an Indian who is a homosexual. What's he doing talking like this? Okay, the the Irish <laughs> immediately, now Gemma differs with me on this, but let's just say, take it at face value, the, the internet lights up with Irish people saying, ah, I'm white, you know. Well, Gemma says that's not true. She says it's all you know, Israeli bots from Tel Aviv, which may be true. But the, the, the crucial thing that happened was that then there's a riot. And uh, she thinks that was a false flag operation. And I think it's true because what this did then was the government stages this riot. You got quote white people brought in and they're throwing Molotov cocktail. Who are they? We don't know who they are. They probably have their faces covered to some extent. Uh, this is like classic black lives matter, false flag operation being imposed on Ireland. And I'm saying, you know, this is not your history you know, this is not going to be helpful to you. And you're playing right into the hands of your enemies if you identify as white, because that's exactly what Leo Varadkar wants you to do. Because as soon as you say you're white, he says, well, all white people are racist. And so therefore we need to ethnically cleanse them from their own country, which is exactly what's going on there. So that being said, I got a lot of grief, a lot of grief. Maybe it's all, you know, Jews from Tel Aviv. I don't know, but I got a lot of grief from somebody out there. Uh, you never know because you don't know who their names are. Uh, but I think it's what I said is making an impression because now there are Irish men who are coming back to their true identity, which is Catholic, and they are praying the rosary in public. Now, this is a sign that they are rejecting the the trap that uh, Veradikar and his, his uh, internationalist buddies have set for the Irish. Okay, Dr. Jones, it's uh, top of the hour here. Uh, one or two more? Let's, we can continue with a few more questions. A few more questions. All right. Um, from Awakey Wake on Rumble, EMJ, what is the likelihood Netanyahu will go to prison after he leaves office? It's not it's a certainty. Uh, and that's why he's holding on to, he has that death grip on uh, the office uh, and is trying to uh, basically ethnically cleanse or kill all of the Gazans and then confront them with a fate confront the world with a fate complete. So I think it's, maybe it's not a certainty, especially if he uh, succeeds in doing this in a relatively short period of time. But the more the war drags on, the weaker Netanyahu's position is. And there are plenty of people who want to see him in jail, including uh, former prime ministers. From Avery Watts on Rumble, a uh, question for EMJ. Any ETA on the second edition for Libido Dominandi in 2024? No, but the uh, Jewish revolutionary spirit is back in print. Uh, 
uh, we have copies from the uh, from the printer. They're available right now. Go to fidelitypress.org. Uh, we are working on the uh, uh, the second edition of Libido Dominandi. It will be out in 2024, but I can't give you a date right now. From uh, from Spectrate on Cozy, uh, will Doctor Jones interview Norman Finkelstein? I've already interviewed Norman Finkelstein. I went to the University of, uh, no, I went to DePaul University in Chicago when he was teaching there. He was at that time in a monumental battle with Alan Dershowitz about who was the toughest Jew from Borough Park. Uh, that's the way he described it. They were both from Borough Park in New York. And uh, Finkelstein had, uh, they were going toe to toe. And uh, uh, Dershowitz won. Uh, the, he pressured the, uh, the Jews who were the benefactors of DePaul into threatening to withhold their money. And at that point, uh, DePaul caved in, typical Catholic university. Uh, and uh, Finkelstein was ready to go to war until they come up with a big settlement. So he's living comfortably off of that settlement. Uh, to be honest with you, I felt nothing but, uh, what should I say, contempt? And maybe it's me, uh, maybe he was having a bad day, but uh, I just got the sense that this guy was kind of wondering, like, why is this guy talking to me about uh, DePaul when it's all just, uh, you know, ridiculous stuff and, and blah, blah, blah. So uh, as because all of that, I mean, God bless Norman Finkelstein. He's a courageous guy, but I don't see any point in going through that a second time. From Catholic Mom on Cozy, is the U.S. a Catholic country? Can it be? Can be. Is it? No, never was. It went from being a Protestant country to being a Jewish country, uh, and the Catholics were cut out. As I've said this many times before. It was on its way. Um, in 1962, I was 14 years old in 1962, and I went to the Fourth of July celebration in Philadelphia, and on the platform was a Catholic mayor, Catholic governor, and a Catholic president by the name of John F. Kennedy. And we know what happened to him. He was murdered by a cabal of CIA and Mossad agents. So to, in order to prevent uh, the end, Kennedy ending the Cold War and acting on Catholic principle, he had undergone a conversion. There are all the stories about his womanizing don't take this into account. There was a conversion that took place. He was working uh, through back channels with Khrushchev to end the war, and that's why the CIA wanted him dead. So we'll never know. It can be. It was never a Catholic country. It was this, The idea of Catholic political power was strangled in its cradle at this point with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, but that doesn't preclude a Catholic future. Uh, from Cozy, who is more brainwashed, Germany or Japan? Mm, I don't have any experience of living in Japan. My, my off the top of my head response would be Germany uh, because the Japanese still retain that sense of uh, xenophobia that was always part of the traditional Japanese culture. <clears throat> Japan will never, is an island, okay? It will never become an immigrant country in the way that the, the self-destructive, self-hating Germans have ch changed Germany. Uh, from Jamers, Jamesers77, what is E. Michael Jones's thoughts on vaccines in general? In general, there are no such thing as vaccines, okay, especially given what we just went through. What was uh, the, the, the Pfizer shot, the MRA, mRNA shot, is not a vaccine. So you have to be careful when you use this category. It's like any category. It's like, uh, like the Jews. Was Moses a Jew? Uh, is Benjamin Netanyahu of the same race as Moses? This is exactly the type of sleight of hand that took place with vaccines where they had this completely uh, sinister thing that got injected into your body that was not a traditional vaccine. Traditional vaccines 
you know, there are dangers with them, but basically you take something like smallpox and you give a minor dose. There's a reaction the body has and it builds up antibodies. Now, John, Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, uh, fiery author of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was made president of Princeton and he died of a smallpox vaccine. So it was dangerous back then, uh, but at least it, that was what we meant by vaccine. From uh, George Clapton on Telegram, uh, what do you think about the Colorado Supreme Court preventing Trump from being on the ballot? It's an outrageous uh, miscarriage of justice. They should all be fired. There should be, uh, this, they have no business doing something like this. Absolutely none. It's a miscarriage of justice. It's, it's uh, political activism, uh, judicial activism of the worst sort. Uh, what was the justification for that? There is no justification. I don't know what their justification was, but there is no justification to exclude him from the ballot. And apparently that they, they tried it in other states and they got shut down. It didn't work in other states. I forget which was the most recent state where West Virginia. Someone tried to do it in West Virginia and it got shut down. From a user on Cozy, um, should Catholics support the building of the Third Temple because it means Jesus will return? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The third temple, uh, I will wager, I would make a wager with anyone, will not be rebuilt. Uh, the third temple will not be built. And if you want to know why, read the chapter on Julian the Apostate in the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, and you'll understand why. Okay, the um, questions are kind of... Um getting slower here do you want to do a couple more just, let's do one more and then we'll call it a night all right i gotta i gotta find one um someone asked a question and i will no not there check telegram Mon cozy give me a question here we are i got one um from mv a question for dr jones uh, are the muslims living in soul scriptura ever since they stopped considering reason along with God's will? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, all right. If you want my take on uh, the Islamic version of Sola Scriptura, which I think had a devastating effect on the development of Logos in is the Islamic world, uh, read the chapter on Islam in Logos Rising, and you will have uh, the details. The interesting, uh, most interesting example, I think, is Iran, which uh, always had a kind of ambiguous relationship to Islam and, and tried to retain its traditional culture it, because it, by retaining its language, the, uh, the Iranians do not speak Arabic. They speak Farsi, which is their own language uh, created by their own poets. And so that's given them a kind of distance uh, that allows them to uh, be different than the the other one, but even there, uh, again, uh, when I was there um, meeting with uh, the, the one mullah in Mashhad, it was obviously he had a bad case of Sola Scriptura. So even there, it's a problem. All right, there we have it. Thanks again. Uh, this has been EMJ Live. Once again, we're here every Friday at 5 Eastern Standard Time. Subscribe to the magazine at culturewars.com. Get the books, fidelitypress.org. Subscribe to Telegram, Cozy, like the videos, all that. Dr. Jones, what are your last words for our Christmas? Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas. There we are. Okay, we'll see you guys next week. God bless and Merry Christmas.